Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. We had our first live 10 by 9 of 2023 this week in the Black Box in Belfast when the theme was Fresh Start and we've three wonderful stories for you from that evening. Looking right back at me was retinitis pigmentosa. Oh, you little beauty. I've lost my wee shaver. No, it's in the bathroom, Dad. And my radio, he says. I've lost my radio. It's beside your bed, Dad. Gone were the days of a quick sandwich and a mug of tea between lunch bells. I now lived in a world of paninis, chivalas and wraps. So prepare for a surprise medical diagnosis, a painful decision involving a parent, and the new exotic world that is retirement. Okay, let's get started, and first up is a first-timer at the 10 by 9 mic. Here's Eamon Drain. So, it all came down to this. There was no plan B, no safety net. After doing a degree for five years that I did not enjoy, medicine, I now had my finals. But instead of looking forward to a potential job in a hospital, like all my fellow students, I was aspiring to a fresh start. I had a job lined up in an accountancy firm, but to get it, I needed to pass my medical finals. And that was not going to be easy. As I was a mediocre medical student, Better at playing snooker than listening to a leaky heart valve. That's because five years ago, I drifted into a degree that I knew nothing about. I grew up on a farm and had no relatives who did medicine and wasn't organised enough to get any relevant work experience in a hospital. Being the youngest of a family of ten, I wanted to be different. Without realising it at the time, because I had a brother who was already doing accountancy, I wanted to be unique. I did okay on exams at school. Someone suggested medicine and I thought, why not? No one forced me to do it. It was no one's decision but my own. I got decent enough A-level results and before I knew it, I had started a medical degree. For the first one and a half years, I learned a lot of facts and managed to regurgitate them successfully, thus passing the first major set of exams. I also assisted in the dissection of a cadaver, or dead body, which had been donated to the hospital for this purpose. I wasn't very good at this. For the next one and a half years, I learned a lot more facts and again regurgitated them successfully, thus passing the second major set of exams. I was also in wards as part of a group of medical students, talking to patients, taking histories, and trying to identify illnesses. This I find to be very challenging. When other people heard lub, whoosh, dub, as expected with a person with a heart murmur, all I heard was a clatter of noise in the earpieces of my stethoscope. When other people were able to do abdominal examination and clearly identify the expanded boundaries of an enlarged liver by proper abdominal percussion, all I achieved was upsetting the patient with my cold hands on their warm tummy. (laughs) So now I had completed three years of a degree that I did not enjoy, and was not very good at. What should I do? Give up and have wasted three years? 
or complete the last two years and at least have a degree to show for it all. I chose the latter. I struggled through fourth year. In the snooker room at the basement level of the student union at Queen's as often as I would have been in a ward, with my white coat stuffed into a plastic bag on the ground under the snooker table. I felt more comfortable there or playing Moon Patrol in the arcade room next door than I did in a ward. In the autumn of final year, when all the other students in my year were applying for jobs the following summer for the Royal, the City, Alton Gelvin, and all the other hospitals out there, I was applying for KPMG, Price Waterhouse, and Coopers and Librand, amongst others. Yes, I was for going wards for accountancy firms. I desperately needed a fresh start. And joy to the world, I got three job offers. But, and it was a big but, all of the offers were subject to me successfully passing my medical finals and having a degree to my name. Given my interest and ability in medicine, or rather lack of it, that was not going to be easily achieved. So I staggered through final year with the pressure ever increasing. My lack of knowledge compared to my peers was becoming ever more apparent. And I was getting increasingly concerned at the reducing likelihood of me passing my finals and getting into a job that I would hopefully feel so much more comfortable with. After what seemed like forever, the finals eventually came around. The written papers were first up and for the third and last time, I was once again able to learn the facts and regurgitate them as required. It was the real life patients who were the problem. They couldn't be underlined, highlighted, <laughs> and the correct answer ticked to the multiple choice question asked. All I could do was look at books, study pictures, talk to the occasional patient, and hope for the best. Not ideal preparation, to say the least. I can still remember that journey down the M1 motorway to the Royal in May 1989, as the next few hours were going to decide my career. Because of my farming background, I drove down in a milk lorry, diesel, not electric. <laughs> I pulled the white coat out of the plastic bag and tugged it down to try and make it look less crumpled. Most of what happened in the next few hours is lost in a blur of adrenaline-filled interactions with patients displaying a variety of histories, symptoms and possible diseases affecting different parts of the body. Some were easy to diagnose in front of the adjudicators, many were not. Then it came to the patient with an issue with their eyes. The number of patients who I had examined over the previous five years with eye issues could probably be counted using the number of eyes that we have. <laughs> Never mind the fingers of one hand. So I was not feeling in any way up hopeful. I took a brief history from the patient, asking about family history, extent and duration of symptoms, medication, etc. And then it was time for the examination. My head was furiously trying to play the game of matching medical conditions that I had seen in the eye textbook with what I had just heard. I hadn't a clue. Then I brought the ophthalmoscope up to the patient's face, trying to make sure that I was pointing it the right way around. I looked into the patient's eye, and then I saw it. I couldn't believe my luck. There was no doubt about it. It was so distinctive. It was just like the picture in the textbook. Looking right back at me was retinitis pigmentosa. <laughs> oh, you little beauty. <laughs> I could have kissed the patient. For one of the last times in my very short medical career, 
I was able to regurgitate the facts about the disease, the cause, the treatment, the risks and likely future outcomes straight from the textbook as always. I completed the rest of my final exams and then waited for the day when the results were put up on the wall. There was no internet and going online in those days. Whilst my colleagues were looking at the top of the long list to see if they had obtained the distinction, my eyes went lower down. <laughs> Just to see if I was included in the alphabetical list of names who had obtained a standard pass. And there it was. I was so happy, but even more relieved. I was free. <laughs> the following September, I arrived at the door of the KPMG offices in Belfast to start my accountancy training, a fresh start with a fresh approach. For the first time in many years, I immediately felt comfortable with what was being discussed, and though it was tough working full-time and studying for and passing exams, it was so, so much easier when you enjoyed the work and felt that it was where you belonged. Over 33 years later, that is still how I feel about the world of accountancy. Many may think it is boring, <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> when I look back, I don't think well, that was a waste of five years. I see it more as making me appreciate where I have worked for the subsequent 30 plus years. I have had a look at the colour of the grass in the other field, and I am happy in this one. Plus, doing medicine for five years has given me the chance to use the terms diagnosis of retinitis pigmentosa <laughs> and future career in accountancy in the same sentence, and there's not too many who can say that. Eamon, thanks so much. The glamorous world of medicine, and you give it up for accountancy, and no regrets. Fair play to you. I do hope you'll be back with us again soon. And if you think you can follow in Eamon's storytelling footsteps, remember it was his first time, then get in touch at 10by9.com or contact us through our social media channels. Okay, on to our next story, and it was only her second time at the 10by9 mic. Here's Julie May Notman. Dad was on the phone again last night. You'll never guess what's happened, he said. They've taken me someplace, and apparently I have to stay overnight. I carefully describe his surroundings. Look over beside the door, Dad. There's a painting of a steam train, isn't there? Now, straight in front of you, a painting of mountains and a lake. It looks Scottish. You're right! He says, and then he laughs. Well, as long as you know where I am, that's the main thing. He moved into the nursing home on the 23rd of December, 2022. A fresh start dad, we told him. Things hadn't been great for a while, and he was in hospital for the few weeks before Christmas. They diagnosed two bleed strokes to the brain, leaving him with some delirium and off his feet. Ready for discharge, said the hospital. Once social workers are involved, things happen quickly. Signing forms, making decisions which, despite your 50-something years, you feel ill-equipped to make. Decisions that wake you at four in the morning bathed in guilt and self-doubt. It's the right decision, people tell you. And logic tells you that they're right. 
Sure, won't he have company? And he's safe. The emotional brain is a different beast altogether. They battle daily for supremacy. I labelled his clothes with a purple sharpie pen, even his socks. They told me not to leave any clothes that couldn't cope with a hot wash and a tumble dry. And so he looks odd to me. He's dressed in unfamiliar clothes, in combinations that I wouldn't have chosen. Whose jumper is this? He asks. That's yours, Dad. I show him the purple Sharpie writing. Oh, he says, I really like this one. On Christmas Day, we bring him home for a couple of hours. He is wearing a shirt that is not his. It is somebody else's name on the label, written in un unfamiliar writing by somebody else's daughter. Dad refuses to take off his coat. I'm very comfortable, he says. His room is bright and clean, and we have daily discussions about the view. What do you think that is out there, he asks. Looks like a workshed, Dad. They probably have lots of things to fix. A thing you could do for me, he says. I've lost my wee shaver. No, it's in the bathroom, Dad. I produce the shaver. A white sticky label has his name on it. And my radio, he says. I've lost my radio. It's beside your bed, Dad. So it is, he says. We're trying to clear Dad's house. This is not an easy process. I have counted 133 coat hangers and 12 pairs of nail scissors, six blow heaters, and 12 blank canvases from the time he took up art. Excessive garden equipment and old pots of paint. Multiples of everything, as if these inanimate objects have been breeding in dark recesses of cupboards. There's a box of mint chocolates, best before January 2007. <laughs> then there are photos, boxes and boxes of photos. Every holiday stowed in little yellow and black Kodak envelopes. Photos of me with all the bad haircuts my parents could inflict on me. There are faded portraits of unsmiling old relatives. I cover their hair and stare at their faces, desperate to eke out a resemblance. Look at the lady on the right, I say to my husband. Tell me who she looks like. I don't know, he says. It's obvious, I say. There are little photos stashed in purses and wallets and one of my grandmother as a young woman that I found inside an engraved manicure set. Castle Place, Belfast, it says on the back. A lady came with a white van last Tuesday and took away all the disability equipment that had been accumulating. Good to get rid of it, isn't it, she said. When I go to visit Dad, I put him into his wheelchair and push him around the corridors of the home saying hello to anyone we can find. I desperately want these people to like my dad. I need them to know who he is. I want to label him in the same way I labelled his clothes. A sign round his neck written with a purple sharpie. This man is a lovely man. My dad was a pharmacist, I tell them. I think of all the old-fashioned glass drug bottles that adorn his house. 
angular glass stoppers in the neck, Latin names on labels, Sir Figus, for those with constipation, Aqua Sambuk, for dear knows what. He loves steam trains too, I tell a care worker. She looks younger than any, any of my own children. Anything you want to know about steam trains, he's your man. She nods politely, but I suspect that she has no interest in steam trains. At home, Dad has old railway lamps and steam train nameplates. He has a metal staff for switching the tracks, tickets and posters and books upon books about trains. When he was a little boy, he would sit beside the railway track in Lisburn and watch the signal. Signal up, signal down. Signal up, signal down. My mum often said that he was late for everything except a train. We meet a resident who used to work in Lisburn. Dad grew up in Lisburn, I tell him. Didn't you, Dad? Dad clasps his hands together and looks down at his knees. On Friday night, I got a phone call from Dad's friend. Her number is next to mine in his contacts list. Your dad is just off the phone, she tells me. He says you have to come and get him because he's stuck in the London Underground. He thinks if he gets out that he could find the hotel. I phone the nursing home. I'm anxious on the phone and I'm speaking too quickly. I tell the nurse in charge about my dad phoning his friend instead of me and being in London and in the underground and that he's very distressed. He thinks he knows where the hotel is though, I explain, so he might be a bit calmer now. Sorry, she says, who am I speaking to? I'm just getting used to turning my phone off at bedtime. There are staff now to check on him through the night. I'm not needed for the 1am or 3am phone call to say that he's on the floor. I feel negligent when I hit the power off button. He's beginning to settle in and has had his first in-house haircut. He did painting on Monday and when I come up to visit, he had orange fingers and green blobs on his trousers. He sent me up to the lounge to see his handiwork. It was stuck on the window, a cardboard cutout rainbow with clouds. Little coloured filters on the back let the light shine through. A symbol of hope. We have a three-way conversation with Dorothy in room two. Dad's hesitant of speech and she can't hear what he says. And I'm piecing it all together for both of them. With much toing and froing, we establish that there was indeed a family called Gowdy, who Dorothy used to visit as a child, who lived in the house opposite my dad's Uncle Wallace. It's a triumph. <laughs> we are all so pleased with ourselves. It's a small world, laughs Dorothy. You can say that again, says my dad, head up, and his old smile back in place. What did he say? She asks. <laughs> Visiting time over and I go to leave. There was something I was meaning to ask you, he says. I suspect that there's nothing he wants to ask me. And I think he knows that too. But it's a way of keeping me there. So we both pause in this space, waiting. What do you think that is out there? 
he asks. I think it looks like a workshed, Dad. They probably have lots of things to fix. It's a nice place, isn't it, Dad? I'm very well looked after, he says. The way I look at it is, aren't I lucky to be as well as I am? I head up the corridor and out into the car park. The automatic door shuts behind me. I have that heavy feeling in my stomach again. It's a fresh start, but it's not easy. Uh, you broke our hearts, Julie May. How gorgeous was that? Thank you so much. Remember, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be. But if you want to help with some of our costs, you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal. Or maybe give the podcast a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. That is Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Podbean, for example. We'd be very grateful. But it's more important to us that you sit back, relax and enjoy. Okay, on to our third and final story this week. And this story was told originally on Zoom a couple of years ago during the pandemic. But it's hard to beat the thrill of a live audience, so I invited Ben Ritchie to tell it in person. Enjoy. One of the signs that made me seriously consider leaving was when I noticed that I had my dad's arms. By that I mean that the hairs on my arms had turned white to match those on my head. It was also becoming more common for me to find myself teaching the sons of guys who I had taught years ago. Or was it only yesterday? I certainly didn't want a scenario that happened to one of my colleagues the year before, who was told by a first year, my granny went out with you. <laughs> Looking round the staff room, where once I had been the youngest and greenest member of staff, I was now the second longest serving teacher in the school. While some of the teachers were younger than my own kids, it was time to go. As I drove out of the school gates for that last time in June 2018, I realised that taking into account primary and secondary school, my college years, my teaching career, I had spent 54 of my 59 years following the cycle of the academic year. It was time to get off that bike and freewheel for a while. My colleagues frequently asked me what I was going to do in retirement. So in my farewell speech, I paraphrased King Thordon's last words and tokens, the return of the king. I go now to meet those who have gone before me, where we will sit at a table and tell tall tales of what great teachers we were, how the kids were much tougher in our day, and how present company accepted for the principal and the ex-principal were there how we pulled the wool over the boss's eyes. <laughs> you can guess the two people who didn't laugh at that joke. But now I would have to start over. I was driving out into a new lifestyle. Was I ready for it? Was it ready for me? After living a life controlled by bells and deadlines, I decided that the first thing to go would be the summer list. This was a list of all the jobs that had to be crammed into and completed over the summer holidays. Now there would be no completion date assigned to any job, 
as from now on, there would always be tomorrow. <laughs> this attitude had to be flexible, as I'm not the only decision maker in the house. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not the decision maker in the house. <laughs> Meanwhile, join our school club. Signs went up in windows. The Premier League began for the first time in living memory. These signposts of the approach of a new term and a new year failed to spoil my mood. I was now on a never-ending holiday. Like any self-respecting, newly retired teacher, I went on a holiday in September. <laughs> Being able to avail of low-season prices, compared with the fact that the majority of kids would be back to school, only increased my anticipated enjoyment of the event. <laughs> and not wanting my old workmates to worry about me coping with retirement, I sent them several photographs <laughs> of sun-kissed beaches, clear blue skies, and bejeweled cocktails, a practice I still continue. <laughs> the responses I received vary from, enjoy it, you earned it, to you may as well be there, because you never worked a day in your life here. <laughs> but you can't permanently be on holiday. So what to do at home? I relished the thought of all that free time. With books to read, a book to write, and masterpieces to paint, I'd have no difficulty filling my time. But with my wife still working full time, I knew I'd have to take up a lot of the jobs in the home. But they wouldn't take long, would they? How naive I was. <laughs> Tidy up after breakfast, put the washing out, put on another wash. Bring the first wash in. <laughs> Don't let the heap of ironing get too high. Do a wee bit of hoovering. Surely, I suggested, it would be more time efficient to leave these chores for a few days and then do a massive clean-up. <laughs> Apparently not. And this point was not open for discussion. <laughs> a seemingly simple task like running into Asda to get a few messages turned into a military exercise to reconnoiter every shop in town for the best buys. <laughs> it was also brought to my attention that it was compulsory, if not a legal requirement, to lunch out at least twice a week. <laughs> Gone were the days of a quick sandwich and a mug of tea between lunch bells. I now lived in a world of paninis, chivadas, and wraps. <laughs> Luckily for me, I was spared the dilemma of choosing, as it was pointed out that at my age, it would be better if I just took a salad. <laughs> but it wasn't all good times. Sometimes, exhausted from shopping and housework, I would steal a few minutes with a cup of tea and a couple of McVitie's digestives and watch a bit of t daytime TV only to be repeatedly told that I was responsible for every global, natural, and man-made disaster <laughs> and every problem in society. However, I could redeem myself by simply texting to donate or setting up a direct debit, which would go some way to absolve me from a lifetime of selfishness and carelessness. But how could I afford this redemption on a mere pension? Again, daytime TV came to my rescue. I could release some of the equity from my house. 
to cover these costs. And if I did it right, I would have enough left to take out a funeral plan. <laughs> so that my family could afford to bury me. So, my ideal image of retirement, sailing a yacht across a calm blue sea, had taken a bit of a battering. Rather than encountering some choppy water, being blown off course a few times, and battling through the old storm. But amid all the turmoil and change, I've managed to stick to a few core aims. I read as many books as I can. I have written a book. I'm just waiting to be discovered by some agent or publisher. <laughs> and every painting I do is a masterpiece. So while those white hairs on my arms signaled the end of one era, they also heralded the beginning of another. Uh, ben, the unexpected glamour of life in retirement. Thanks so much. Let's hope you have time for lots more stories for us. And that is it for this podcast. Temba and I live events are back up and running for 2023. Check out all our dates on our website, tembaandine.com, or keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or a rating at a podcast app and tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to all the people who make 10 by 9 happen. This week, Margaret McClory, the gorgeous people of the Black Box, our wonderful audience and all our storytellers. But especially Eamon Drain, Julie Mae Noteman and Ben Ritchie. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now... Bye-bye.